good morning. I grew up in Oregon's Willamette Valley. Because of my pioneer ancestors, my Pacific Northwest roots run deep, all the way back to the 1850s in both Oregon and Washington. My children and I comprise the seventh and eighth generations descended from those ancestors. My public education from elementary school through college was in the state of Oregon and was steeped in the story of my ancestors, the hardworking, resilient pioneers who persevered through hardship and deprivation to settle and tame this beautiful, verdant region that had beckoned them from afar. Of course, this story is not the only story, but it is the one that I learned. Growing up in Salem, I vaguely recall the Indian school on the outskirts of the city. I didn't know anything about it except that it was the school that Indians apparently attended, and it seemed self-sufficient with its tall evergreens and water tower bearing its name, Shamawa. I learned only recently Shamawa was founded in the 1870s for the purpose of assimilation of Indian children into mainstream white society and is the oldest continuously operating Indian school in the nation. My obliviousness to this outpost of the doctrine of discovery caught up with me in 2013 when I was across the state in Pendleton attending a high school basketball tournament that my son was competing in for Western Mennonite School. In between games, my father and I toured through a museum celebrating the traditions of the local Cayuse, Umatilla, and Walla Walla tribes in that area. There was an exhibit about the forced removal of Native American children from their families and communities to attend boarding schools for vocational training and acculturation into American, read white, society. Stories of abuse and dislocation in the schools were told in agonizing detail. And there, on a chilly spring day far across the state from Salem, Chamawa Indian School found me in an enlarged picture that took up most of a wall. Dressed in military-style school uniforms and caps covering their cropped-off hair, the male students were as young as five or six and dressed like the white people settling in the area. No one is smiling in the picture. The shock and trauma on their faces stared back at me giving me the unmistakable message that the Indian school in my hometown was an instrument of suffering and cultural genocide. My obliviousness to this history of torment, my miseducation despite being a college graduate, was a painful awakening. I realized how very much I did not know of my own backyard. That's my story, and as I have come to see, my obliviousness was no accident. I'm going to share with you now about my ancestors on both my mother's and father's side of the family who had the direct contact with Native Americans that I did not. One set of my maternal great-grandparents lived on the Rosebud Indian Reservation in South Dakota about 100 years ago. My great-grandfather, Chester Adams, secured a contract with the Bureau of Indian Affairs to operate a general store on the reservation. His wife, Maud Adams, was known on the reservation as the white witch doctor because she helped nurse people with afflictions back to health. Chester and Maud had a son and were expecting another baby when, as family lore tells it, she arrived home one cold November day in 1915 to find her husband in bed with a Native woman. My great-grandfather, excuse me, my great-grandmother marched across the frozen reservation's landscape of ravines and pine trees to a place of sanctuary. She birthed my grandmother and left for Omaha, divorcing her husband. Maud Adams remarried and moved to Oregon with her second husband and family. 
I lament her abrupt dismissal from people who regarded her as a healer, as such relationships are often intimate and even sacred. But it was not until our congregation was engaged in the loss of Turtle Island exercise a few years ago that I pondered about the native woman my great-grandmother discovered in that compromising scene with her husband. As we sat in small groups and contemplated together, following the removal of the blankets that symbolized the loss of native culture, land, life, and language, I thought about that old family story. And for the first time, it occurred to me that this anonymous Lakota woman may not have been with him as a willing participant. My great-grandfather may have been assaulting her. All I had heretofore felt up to that point was empathy for my great-grandmother's terrible predicament. I know now it is my unconscious whiteness and miseducation that delayed my empathy for this nameless Native woman. My therapist recently agreed with me that it is unimaginable her extramarital sexual involvement with my ancestor was consensual. Not only was he white, he was also part of the oppressive power structure dominating the lives of those confined on the Rosebud Reservation. Thanks to Ancestry.com, our family recently learned this philandering great-grandfather remarried, but not a Native woman, which suggests to me that whomever he was with on that fateful day, it was not because he loved her and was willing to forsake his white wife and children for her. In the same decade that Chamawa Indian School was founded, a Native American tribe on the Olympic Peninsula entered into a most unusual transaction. The Sklalem, a tribe that, that means strong people, have resided in that beautiful area for more than 10,000 years, developing a rich social and religious culture that included ceremonial masks, wood carving and basket weaving, and clothing from cedar bark and the wool of mountain goats and a now extinct dog. Over three seasons of the year, the Sklalem would move from village to village, hunting and gathering the abundant food resources available on the beaches and in the mountains, and then settling into longhouses for the winter months. This nomadic movement within that region began to be curtailed with the incursion of white settlement, including some of my ancestors who began arriving in 1860. Just prior to their arrival, the Sklalem tribe entered into the point-no-point treaty with the United States in 1855 but remained within their traditional lands, resisting a move to a Skokomish reservation near present-day Shelton. Washington did not become a state until 1889, but the territorial legislature had passed laws barring the indigenous from purchasing property. But in 1874, a crafty Sklalem chief, Lord James Balsh, did this, as described by Chief Whitefeather in 1957. A man named Bill Delaney had logged off what now comprises the Jamestown village of 222 acres. He told Lord Jim Balsh that he would sell the tract to him for $500. Lord Jim talked to his people, and they pooled their money. Some gave $50, some gave $25, some $10. The land was bought in Chief Balsh's name. After a year or so, they divided up the land. Some of the families having relatives with no land gave them permission to build, and so Jamestown was established about 1875. This 100-member settlement of Jamestown was named in honor of Lord James Balsh, who gathered the gold coin from those families and handed it over to my great-great-grandfather, William Delante. I do not know how my great-great-grandfather gained the authority to log this particular land parcel at the foot of Squim Bay. Was it a homestead grant of free land from the U.S. government, or had he purchased it from someone else? Family lore conveys he was not highly regarded by his fellow pioneers for this transaction to the indigenous, who were supposed to be off and gone, but he is fondly remembered by the Sklalem. Well, 
I've shared with you before about the annoying inclination to put the most positive spin possible on the actions of our ancestors. We want our forebears to stand on the right side of history. But I am disconfitted by the notion that these indigenous people were compelled to participate in an imposed economic system that monetized the very landscape they had traversed for millennia. Perhaps these cognitive gymnastics are a vain attempt to justify what is actually untenable. From 1953 to 1981, the Jamestown Sklalem were not federally recognized as a tribe due to their refusal to vacate Jamestown and relocate to a reservation that contained two other Sklalem tribes, the Lower Elwha and the Port Gamble. We know from learning about the Duwamish here in our watershed how costly it is to not have federal recognition that taps critical funding to help sustain and perpetuate their existence. This request to vacate their legal property seems extreme, and it cost them their federal recognition. They remained in Jamestown, however, enduring hardship and through extensive litigation, eventually regained federal recognition and a reservation adjacent to their original property. Current day population of the tribe is around 600. Their land ownership has increased to more than 1,000 acres, which includes Railroad Bridge Park along the Dungeness River, a squim golf course, and a sacred ancient rock site near Chimicum. In considering all of this, like any good white person, I am anxious to stand on the right side of history, too. I want to live into a new, different, and better day than what our nation and my ancestors lived through and engage relationships with depth and meaning. My mind thus rushes to recompenses. Yes, my education was at least 95% white in its racial makeup and stunted by its single-story focus, but my son, himself a descendant of enslaved people from his father's side, enjoyed playing basketball as a Western Mennonite, get this, pioneer in the same league with the Chamawa Braves. He easily conversed and hung out with the native students after the games, or perhaps I could, I could speed across the Hood Canal Bridge to return that $500 to the Jamestown Sklalem, or however much that would convert to in today's dollars 145 years later. I am doing what unconscious white people do. I'm trying to make poison palatable. But no matter how I try to bend it, I simply cannot compensate for what my great-grandfather Adams did to God knows how many Native women, but definitely at least one. <sighs> What I consider instead is this, knowing what I now know. What is God's will? What does God want me to do? I'm thinking about the loss of relationships through the generations, how my ancestors had immediate direct contact with Native Americans and how I essentially had none myself as I was growing up. Um, And I think about how, Maxine, you have shared with us so many times your gratitude for your family giving you direct contact with the Lumi people um, and how how enriching that was for you. And so I think that's sort of what has happened here is we've We've lost connection. We've, we, were, we were very much socialized to be white and to stay white. And I remember when I was dating Greg about 35 years ago, some of my friends from high school and college were just like, can't you just stay with your own kind? You know, we've had that pressure on us to do that. But, you know, as John Stace pointed out to us when he shared his reparation story, to make full restoration to the indigenous is impossible, but to do nothing is unjust. And I see how over time this loss of relationship with the indigenous and the miseducation that had produced my obliviousness several generations later, how all of that just sort of worked 
so that Martin Luther King, in talking in his I Have a Dream speech, spoke longingly of descendants of former slaves and, and, and descendants of former slave owners being able to sit together at a table of fellowship. Do you know how subversive that actually is? Especially for us. So... In his 1854 essay concerning the fugitive slave law, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, there is a divine providence in the world which will not save us, but through our own cooperation. So I must thank you, my divine community, for how we are cooperating together as a congregation seeking to discern and do God's will. Specifically, Sarah and Dan, thank you. You put us on this journey. Thank you. We needed this. I'm grateful for this re-education our congregation has undertaken that is helping me perceive differently than I did before I began worshiping here. I cannot make up for these specific injustices I've shared this morning, but perhaps through relationships I can do my very, very, very small part to help enable that new, different, and better day. Thank you for opening my eyes to face the trauma suffered by that nameless Lakota woman on the Rosebud Reservation. Thank you for helping support my son as he received his Mennonite-infused education and made his friendly connection with the oldest Indian school in the nation. And I will close with this request. Please hold me accountable to head up to the Olympic Peninsula and make connections with descendants of those who knew my ancestors. Pray me past my introversion and paralyzing fear of offending or inadvertently saying the wrong thing so I can hear a story that may not flatter my ancestor as much as my family has. May God's will be done. Hello. My name is Kyle Rammergarten. I use he, him pronouns. I'm going to share with you a small story of a conversation that I had with my grandmother uh, last year and just what's come of it. I went to a wedding for my brother in St. Louis, which none of us are from St. Louis, um, but we were in St. Louis together. And my grandmother and my family were from Wichita, Kansas. And so being just in the Midwest was an opportunity for me to see my grandmother and my grandfather, who I miss a lot. Um, they, um, they go to a Mennonite church um, in Atchison now. Like, I can't remember which one because they're not in Wichita anymore. They were part of Mennonite Brethren. But, um, and I just, I just got in there, like I flew in for one day for this wedding. I don't see my family very often at all. And it was going to be a Catholic mass in the extraordinary Roman rite, which means it was going to be entirely in Latin, and we were like not going to be talking for over an hour while we listened to the priests like, do things in Latin. And lots of standing up and sitting down and um, crossing yourself and holy water and all, the whole thing. It was very exciting. Gorgeous cathedral in St. Louis. Um, so I walked in the door and I was late because my pants didn't fit and like my aunt was literally hemming them like 15 minutes. But my pants never fit. I'm tiny. <laughs> so so I, I was completely flustered and discombobulated, arrived, found out that since it was such an old cathedral, there was one tiny bathroom like underneath a spiral staircase 
like as far away from the altar as possible so that like we we're all like in this very long circuitous line to like get into the bathroom to make sure that we still look presentable and I ran into my grandma and I was like oh my gosh you're here this is wonderful and we clasped hands and it was like very echoey and we couldn't hear each other and the first thing that she says to me was I still remember the deed of our land in Oklahoma signed over by the Cherokee Nation as they went on the Trail of Tears. And I was like, what? Because this just came, there was as much context as you have to that statement as I had. I just walked into it. Um, as near as I can tell, trying to recreate where my grandmother was when she said this to me, was that she had seen something on my Instagram about indigenous peoples, but it was before Indigenous Peoples Day that this happened, and I have not done much in my classroom to center the stories of indigenous peoples. That's an area of learning for me. So I don't know where this came from, but it was something she was thinking about. We did not have any other time to talk about it because the mass was starting and I had to get to the front. And hours later, um, in a really noisy reception hall. Like, we did not have a much of a chance to talk about it either because both my grandmother and my grandfather um, are hard of hearing, and it's hard to, like, have a shouted conversation about the divestment of land from indigenous peoples in a crowded reception hall after a Catholic wedding and the extraordinary Roman rites. So... <laughs> Um, I, get, I got back on a plane, and I flew back, and I sent her an email. Um, I was just like, could you say more about that? Do you still have the deed? Um, what do you mean? My church is talking a lot about the doctrine of discovery and our own stories of settler colonization and our connection to the cultural and literal genocide of indigenous peoples. Can you say more about this? And she wrote back. Um, so I'm going to read you, actually. The, she sent me, like, 15 emails. That's great. Um, but this was a forward, Cherokee Strip. Kyle, these two cousins have come up with much stuff. Pick and choose. Both are recently retired from their university positions, one in NB and one in NC, comma, G. Forwarded message from Myron Twos. Jerry, I know for sure that our families, some of the first but not the first to come to Oklahoma, were well after the land run, and our farms all had at least one owner prior to any Mennonite owners. I have copies, I think, of the deeds for all of our farms, and I'll try to remember to look. They were, of course, an old Indian territory and Cherokee Strip, but pretty sure the earliest owners show them as getting the land as homesteaders and from the United States government, not from Indians. The only other thing I know related to Indians and minnows is that the minnows ran some sort of school and home for Indian kids, I believe near, I don't know how to say this, Okarche? I don't know. Here is the link that Kyle might find useful to read and or share. There's a link here. Note the title, Minnow Invasion of Indian Territory. Not the way we like to think of it, probably, but absolutely what we did. Avath was in charge of one of the Minnow Indian schools. Pretty sure the goal of all of these was to make white folks out of the Indians, quote, assimilation, destroy their heritage, lifestyle, memories, homogenize the population. Hope I'm not bringing you down. From Errol Twos to Myron Twos. Myron, just got this from Jerry. I might have some info to send in the morning about dates, but nothing about Indians. Keep me in the loop in any replies. Errol. P.S. Too much rain here. And my grandma's original email to them. Do you know what kind of land deal the Nebraska minnows received on their OK land? I remember that dad's land deed said that it came from the Indian nations. I wish I had copied it. 
Johnny bought that farm. The NB people came after the strip, didn't they? Our grandson, Kyle, attends the Mennonite USA Church in Seattle, and they're studying the relationship between the Mennonites and the Native Americans. Any help would be appreciated. Wish I had asked more questions. Dad didn't talk about history unless we asked. Wish he had been a storyteller. Gee. So that is what I'm trying to be, um, falteringly and haltingly as a white person, um, telling the stories of the participation in purchasing land from the government. Notice the alignment of responsibility that happens in that email. But like later, Myron does a good job of accounting for what was actually taking place, the uh, cultural and genocide and the assimilation of Indians into white culture. I'm trying to be a storyteller, and actually I have had an opportunity to tell this specific story, like right after I got all of this stuff from my grandma. Um, it was Indigenous Peoples Day, and we were talking about this in my classroom, and my kids were asking a lot of questions about colonialism, which in second grade, um, kids are so good at generating questions. And it was really valuable for me to be able to, to be a concrete example of how white people divorced from the immediate impact of their actions could think of themselves as just purchasing land from the United States government while also knowing like that the result of those actions were the forced migration and the death of many Cherokee Indians as they moved onto the Cherokee Strip and and walked the Trail of Tears. And so being able to say that to my students, that I stand before you as a white teacher who has benefited from colonization of the United States and has benefited from the sale of Indian lands to white people and to white settlers, and to tell the stories of Mennonites as they emigrated into the United States and received these lands. It's been valuable for my students, and it's allowed my students to put a face on what colonization really looks like. So thank you for listening.